Welcome to Oasis this morning. Um, you might be wondering, why am I up here preaching and not Pastor Aaron with those really cool new white tennis shoes? You guys see that this morning? He's, he's dressing with nicer kicks than the cool youth pastor right now, so I need to step up my game. Um, no, they look good, Pastor Aaron. I, I'm a little jealous. So um, anyways, I uh, hope you guys have had a great week. Um, I'm excited to get into this study, and uh, uh, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse series uh, through the book of Mark. Uh, It's entitled Walking with Jesus. And uh, in previous messages, I've made the jokes of like, man, we've been in this study for quite a while. But I don't know about you, uh, but I have personally enjoyed uh, chronologically just going through uh, the life, the ministry of Jesus over these uh, last several months, if not a little bit over a year. Um, last week, we took a little bit of a, uh, a one-week pause. We jumped back into our rest series, something we started the year off with uh, as we learned about resting uh, in a reset. And so today, we're going to get right back into uh, Mark uh, chapter 13. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, last month and a half, uh, you've known that uh, we've been in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 12, as we jump into 13 today. Um, it's really encapsulating a short period of time as Christ has come to the end of his earthly ministry and has entered into uh, Jerusalem um, to uh, ultimately commence the Holy Week uh, that will eventually culminate at the cross. Um, We've seen him come into town on Monday, uh, cleanse the temple, flip tables, uh, there spend most of Tuesday and, and Wednesday uh, throughout the area in the temple, outside the temple. Uh, he continues to teach his disciples, uh, but also have religious uh, debates or discussions with the religious leaders there um, within the temple. But over the last uh, several weeks that we've been in this study and the last several days within the setting here, uh, we've seen Christ really ultimately highlight Uh, the religious corruption that has taken place in Jerusalem and within uh, the temple. So we're going to be in the first 13 verses today of of Mark chapter 13. Pastor Aaron will pick up uh, in verse 14 next Sunday. And so we're going to be in the first 13 verses. Now, this passage is also uh, paralleled in two uh, other gospels in Matthew chapter 24 and also Luke chapter uh, 21. The passage has a uh, uh, kind of a, uh, a famous title, uh, if you will, as some passages are throughout the Bible. You get into Matthew chapter 5, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this passage is known as containing the beginning of the Olivet uh, Discourse. One, why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Well, for one, uh, the primary setting. Uh, that this passage takes place is at the Mount of Olives, um, but also because uh, it's labeled this because of a significance of what Christ spoke concerning the prophecy of future events. Actually, one commentator said, um, we're, we're going to get into this study, the questions that are asked of him and to him. The answer he replies in the next, into this chapter, is actually one of the longest documented, if not the longest documented answer uh, that Christ gave uh, to his disciples or to his followers. So let's read this passage. Uh, we will pray. And then we will jump into uh, the study this morning. So Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And it says here, And as he went out of the temple, 
one of his, whoop, dropped a pencil there. Uh, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat, verse 3, upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be, not, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles, but these are the beginnings of sorrows. But in verse 9, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first, verse 10, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak. Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. In verse 13, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Let's pray this morning. God, we just thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word, to continue uh, in this verse-by-verse study through the book of Mark as we've gone through the life and the ministry, the miracles uh, of Jesus, and uh, as it begins to culminate towards the end of his earthly life here in the Holy Week, God, I pray that we would um, look at the lessons uh, that Jesus is not just teaching to his disciples then, but to us today as well. God, I pray that we would just have an open heart, have an open mind, and uh, apply these lessons, uh, examine our own selves to see where today we may need to change, where we need to course correct, where we need to adjust in our daily walk with you, Lord. God, I just pray for your power over the message that you would just fill me with exactly what you would want me to say to this year, church, this morning. Ask this in your name. Amen. So the title of today's message is, What Are You Building? What Are You Building? And we'll, we'll unpack and explain why that's the title here within the first few verses. But what are you building? The main point that I'd like to share with you this morning is the fact that we as Christians must strive to truly know Christ more in order to be faithful in building people for the kingdom. So the question is, what are you building? The answer is that we as Christians must strive to truly know Christ more in order to be faithful in building people for the kingdom. 
In this passage, the first six verses, the first thought this morning is that we first must know the true Christ. We must know the true Christ. Jesus had spent a good portion of almost a day and a half, almost two whole days, Tuesday and Wednesday, in and around the temple, teaching lessons to his disciples, interacting with the religious leaders. It's Wednesday evening, and they are uh, departing from the temple as they're walking to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 1, the disciples become enamored or in awe of the beauty and the magnificence of the temple uh, there in those evening hours. They literally tell Jesus, Master, or you could use the word teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. The temple complex wasn't just the temple building, but there were several buildings all around it. Beautiful courtyards, beautiful edifices for people to, the nation of Israel to come and to worship, uh, to worship God because the temple represented the presence of God. It truly was magnificent. In fact, Herod the Great took over 40 years to build the temple. 40 years. How many of you get annoyed when a road construction project in Las Vegas takes more than 18 months, right? I live off of Russell, and that road still has orange cones on it. Um, 40 years to build this temple. Now, this temple was built, and it was truly one of the most ancient architectural marvels in the world at that time. Its facade, its edifice was built of polished white stone. Its eastern wall was covered in gold, gleaming in the evening light like it was a jewel or or a gem. I can imagine as the sun is setting, the golden hour, the the eastern walls being lit up, and as they're walking to the Mount of Olives, they look back and they say, look how magnificent and beautiful this building is. But as I said a moment ago, the point of this temple was for it to be a place of, for Israel to truly worship God, for his presence was there. But it's ironic, though, that Jesus has just spent the greater portion of the last two days, 48 hours, there in the temple, having conversations, teaching lessons, examining the widow's offering with the might, and, uh, and, and literally trying to be trapped into interrogations by the religious leaders, and then he, in turn, uh, traps them with a, uh, uh, an answer they weren't expecting. And yet the disciples are kind of walking out of this temple. And they're like, man, look how beautiful that looks. I don't know about you, but as a parent sometimes, like I've taught my seven-year-old and my four-year-old and working on it with Hudson, our one-year-old, hey, don't do this, don't do that. And they look at you, they're like, yep, okay, I understand. And then what do they do two seconds later? They go then and do that, right? And so Jesus had just spent two days literally highlighting to his disciples and there the corruption that really had overtaken the temple. And they leave the temple like, man, that building, that, that complex is gorgeous, it's beautiful. And I'm not trying to take anything away from uh, the disciples. I truly believe it was. He, Jesus spent the time there highlighting the corruption that was taking place with inside the walls of a building meant for a more proper purpose of, of truly worshiping God. One commentator said it this way, that it's the temple's external beauty was a monument to an apostate religion. The disciples were looking at the external beauty rather than the internal beauty that was corrupted because of the money changers, the businesses, and the things that Jesus literally just ran out of the temple days before. They were looking at the, the disciples were looking at the external beauty rather than the internal beauty of the presence of the living God. 
This reminds me of a passage in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, the Lord, the latter half of verse 7, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For the man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. I've had friends that have told me stories of they've met certain celebrities, and I won't call out the names of these celebrities, but celebrities that for all intents and purposes in society are like pretty awesome, attractive, great looking, quote unquote, nice people. And then when they, my friends would meet so-and-so, like, yeah, this person or that person, they may look the part, but when you meet them deep down inside, they're just mean, they're rude, or the word was used, man, he treated me like a jerk. Um, you know, and we've all maybe kind of experienced something, maybe not on the scale of a celebrity, but just meeting someone like, hey, that's someone I'd like to get to know. They seem pretty cool. They seem like someone that would be great to have a conversation with. And then when you go to talk to them, or if you're an extrovert like me, and you're like, hey, how's it going? And you ever have that uh, conversation reply where it's just crickets? They just don't give you time of day. And then like me and my people pleaser mode say it a second time and there's more crickets. And I'm like, all right, got it. You don't want to talk. All right. So on the outside, it looks cool. On the inside, you're just mean. Um, you know, when it comes to the temple, yes, it was externally magnificent, beautiful, a, a sight to see, a, a, an architectural marvel. But on the inside, it was corrupt. It was messed up. It wasn't being used of its intensive, intensive purpose there. You know, the disciples most likely may have said this statement because they just spent a couple days with Jesus in the temple listening and watching the conversations and understanding that the building's corrupt, but then they're looking to Jesus to rule and reign and establish his earthly kingdom right there, right now. So it's almost like you're walking out of a palace. Hey, Jesus, the, the leadership's corrupt. They don't know what they're doing, but man, isn't that building beautiful? Isn't it gorgeous? Hey, let's just go back there and Usher all them out and take over and, and you can rule and you can reign in this very temple. You can truly cleanse it from the corruption, restore it back to its original purpose. In verse one, they were enamored with the building. In verse two, they were greeted with an unexpected uh, statement, question and answer. But before we get there, I do want to say this statement because I don't want to get it out of order. One of the great qualities, and I don't say this as a point of bragging, I don't say this as a point of pride for our church, but if you were to ask me to define Oasis in one word, it would be family. It honestly would be family. If you're a guest with us this morning, and if you didn't feel the atmosphere of family, let me know, because I'll be the big brother that hits people that does, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but at the same time, it's family. But you know what's interesting is this building, this 9,000 plus square feet. It's got the name Oasis Baptist Church plastered on the, on the facade above the doors. You see materials and handouts that have branding and stuff like that. This building is not Oasis Baptist Church. The people are. We are. We, the, the, the word church, ecclesia, is a called out assembly. It's not an actual building. It's us as the people. And so the question that we looked at earlier is what are you building? And I would say that the disciples were looking to build a temple or to build a kingdom that the timing was not there. At Oasis, the church isn't a building, it's the people. So the question is, what are we building? The main point this morning is that we must strive to truly know Christ more in order to be faithful in building people for the kingdom. In verse 2, Jesus responds with an unexpected question. 
He says, seest thou these great buildings, the ones the disciples just pointed out to him? There shall not be one, there shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Can you imagine the excitement the disciples have? Woohoo! We're, everything's corrupt, but Jesus is here. He's going to clean house. Hey, Jesus, come check out this building. It's already ready to go. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, it's going to be destroyed. Talk about stopping you dead in your tracks. Like, wait, what? Like, this thing took 40 years. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, in, in, in that moment, Jesus foretells that these magnificent, gorgeous buildings, this complex, will be destroyed. And not one stone will be, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, what's interesting is about 30 years ahead from this conversation, something does take place, historically speaking, where the Romans in AD 70 uh, come in 30 to 40 years ahead, and Jesus' words were literally and precisely fulfilled. An army under the rule of Titus Vespasian came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They said over a million people died in that undertaking. The entire complex, these beautiful walls of white stone, the Romans would set fires at the base of that stone and literally commentators would say as if the stone would just melt off. And there's actually pictures today below the Temple Mount where there's literally stones spread out that used to be part of this temple almost 2,000 years ago. His words literally came to fruition with this building. But as we go through this study, I'm going to contend that this is not the temple that Jesus is talking about in his reply. This is talking about a future temple. And we'll get there. So he says, you see these great buildings, the stones will come down. So then this is, verses one and two are taking place from on the walk, on the journey from the temple to the Mount of Olives. In verse three, they get to the Mount of Olives. And as he, Jesus, sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James, John and Andrew, asked him privately. So we have four disciples, uh, the inner circle, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. They privately begin to ask Jesus some clarifying questions. Now, naturally, I would too. Jesus is telling them, hey, this temple that you think is beautiful and gorgeous is going to be torn down. It's going to be gone. And they're like, okay, question number one, Jesus, verse four, when shall these things be? Tell us, when is this going to happen? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled. So when is this going to happen? And what's the sign of that happening? But now in Matthew chapter 24, the parallel passage to this, we've known in the last several months that when we study Mark, Mark is a very to the point, maybe like cliff notes, he hits all the main ideas, but there's certain details and certain things that he may have left out. But Matthew in chapter 24, three, the second question, number one was, what shall the signs be? Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? Jesus and the disciples are having a conversation. And I believe the disciples are looking to Jesus right now as, hey, this is going to happen soon. You're going to come and rule and reign. You're here. And even though over the last several months, we've seen Jesus foretell multiple times to his disciples of his coming death, burial, and resurrection, there's a part of me that still feels like they're just not fully grasping it because they've seen Jesus perform miracles. They know he's physically there on earth right now and that he could just, if he wanted to, just rule and reign right there. But the main question that they ask is not so much what or when shall this happen, but what shall be the signs of that happening? In verse five and six, Jesus begins to answer. He says, take heed, 
lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. Jesus admonishes them when they're asking for when this happens, when they're asking what are the signs of this happening, of your return, of your coming, of the end of the world, uh, what, what, what are those things? And he says, number one, you need to know the truth. Know the true Christ. Take heed. The literal word there uh, for heed literally means to look or to see or to beware, um, to take heed that any man can deceive you because many are going to come in the name of Christ as a Christian or maybe even as bold to say, hey, guess what? I am Christ and, and shall deceive many. And I often wonder, how would they deceive many? Because a lot of times people may be itching for that new teaching, that new thought, that new principle that, that's new and different. And they may latch onto it, but Jesus is warning to his disciples, these four men in this private conversation, is you need to look, you need to beware because people are going to come that are going to lead you astray. Many deceivers will come. In fact, I remember, and we're going to get to this in the second point when we look at the signs and we look at some of the, the timeline of end of the world events and how Jesus lays it out. But I remember several years ago, my brother and I, uh, my younger brother and I, we were jet skiing in the intercoastal waterway in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, we made the mistake of thinking our little jet skis could handle the open ocean. I had no idea the waves were like 17 times bigger out there. So we get back in and we're, we had conversations earlier that day. And that day was a day where someone, I forget his name, uh, came out in the weeks previous and said, hey, guess what? The rapture, the Lord coming to receive his church is going to happen on this day. And there's been many people all throughout history that have made those claims and been wrong. But what was unique about this claim was it's going to happen at 6 o'clock p.m. per time zone which that was, that was a new one. So it's like a rolling rapture, like East Coast, Central Mountain Pacific. So we're jet skiing and it's about 6.01 and I look over to my younger brother and I said, hey, Zach, we're still here. He's like, yep, another wrong prediction. And, and I say that to say that no man, the Bible says no man's gonna know the hour of Christ's return. But why is that important? Why is knowing the truth important? There's gonna be a lot of people that come in and deceive you. But to look for the truth, we must first know the truth. If some teacher or some preacher comes to you with a new teaching, a new idea, you as a Christian must first know Christ, God, his word, the Bible, to a point where you can then discern what they are saying is true or not. The United States Secret Service is the law enforcement agency that most of you know, protects the president, the cabinet, and elected officials within our country. But what most of you may not know is that they also oversee the, the money system within our, within our country, whether a, a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill is real or it's counterfeit. Um, their agents, when they train, they never study fake money. They study the real thing. They look at the security strips, the texture, the, the watermarks, the, the little fine print on the president's collar that says the United States of America on certain denominations of our paper money. They study the real thing. They don't touch the fake stuff because when the fake stuff comes across, they are so well in tune with what's real that they can easily say, oh, this is fake. 
wrong paper, no security strip, um, the, the, this isn't raised or that isn't raised. They study the real thing. And in a very real way as Christians, in order for us to know Christ more, we have the real thing. We have the completely revealed word of God as he intended for us to have it. It's right here. We need to study the real thing. Now, yesterday, uh, we had our, our team Bible study and we're going through Bible doctrines. And I made the statement that the, because of God being the author, the inspired author of writing the Bible, yes, he used 40 plus men over 1,500 years to pen the physical words in the books. But because God is the author, we can then believe that it's, it's full, it's perfect, it's complete. What we have is all we need. And, and, and then because of that, we can take trust in the fact that because Jesus is the author, that we know that's the real thing because Jesus, God can't make a mistake. And so if we know those truths and Jesus is answering this question, hey, when's this gonna happen? What are those signs gonna be? He says, number one, take heed, look, beware. Many deceivers are gonna come. You need to know the real thing. In order to know Christ more, we should study the real thing. There's plenty of commentaries, there's plenty of tools, and there's plenty of aids that allow us to help us understand this more. But when it comes to the final authority of our life, this is all we need. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't know every single iota of what does this mean? What does that mean? So there's times I have to read commentaries and I have to read different explanations. And even in this study, as scary as, great, all the end times stuff gets to land on Pastor Dan's desk. Um, don't worry, Pastor Aaron gets the good one next week. Um, there was this like, this week, I had this like genuine like fear of, I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to read because I don't want to mess this up. And in reading, even within this passage, there's different theological uh, viewpoints of timing of when this happens and when that happens, and some of which we'll present. But Jesus says in response to this question, uh, or this statement of, look at these buildings, the building's going to be destroyed. Hey, when's this going to happen? He says, you need to take heed. You need to look. You need to be aware. Many will come in my name and deceive many. We must know Christ more in reading his word, the Bible, in our prayer life, in giving, in fellowship, in building one another, edifying one another. What are you building? If the answer is not building people for the kingdom, that's what the answer should be. We must prepare in knowledge. If you're gonna run a marathon, if you're gonna run a race, if you're gonna play a sport, there is physical practice you must do in preparation to perform at the highest level on game day. When it comes to our spiritual preparation, we must prepare, we must be in the word, we must know the mind, the character, uh, the heart of Christ to discern what is true and what is not, but also to build people for the kingdom. Not only should we know the true Christ this morning, point number one, we should also know the signs of his return in order to share that truth with a world that needs it. Verses seven through 12, knowing the signs. And for sake of time, we're not gonna spend too much time in, in this section because I want to uh, hit number one, Jesus saying, know the truth, know what's real. But then he's also telling his disciples in this answer, um, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled, for these things must be. The end is not yet. So Jesus says there's wars and there's rumors of wars. Don't be afraid. 
This must happen. This instability must first happen before the Lord returns. I was reading a couple commentators on like, well, in today's society, there's wars. There's rumors of wars. In verse 8, uh, verse, um, excuse me, yeah, verse 8, uh, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in diverse places. There shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. So in verses 7 and 8, we get these signs of wars, rumors of wars, nations turning on nations, and the kingdom against kingdom turning on themselves literally means that, that there's, there's ethnic tension, there's inward fighting within nations. So not only wars of nations against each other, but inward fighting within nations rise against each other. There's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines. If you're here for the first time and you're like, man, that's kind of scary. It is, it really is. I don't know about you, but I'm not the biggest fan when countries go to war. Now, I'm very thankful that we in the contiguous United States haven't seen things on the scale that we see in Ukraine right now. I'm thankful for God's protection, but that's not beyond the realm of possibility. But let me say this, just because we see wars and rumors of wars, Jesus then gives a timeline statement. When you hear of these things, Don't be afraid. This must happen before God returns. But guess what? The end shall not be yet. And then nations against nations, like turning on each other, earthquakes, earthquakes in in weird places, famines, these troubles. Jesus says in verse 8, these are the beginning of sorrows. The word there for sorrows is the same word as birth pains or contractions. Uh, My wife has had three children. We've gone through that process. And Jesus is saying that these things that you hear and these things that you'll see or begin to see are the birth pains, the beginnings of what will come, but the end shall not be yet. The birth pains are there to establish the need for the kingdom in the hearts of the people. You remember what, you remember Pharaoh? You remember the plagues? You remember one of the purposes that God was allowing these plagues to happen in Egypt was so that they would, Pharaoh's heart would see that he was not God and that the God Jehovah was truly God. Some of these signs and things will come up. I remember literally almost a year and a half ago, a former coworker called me when all the COVID stuff was starting to happen and as the world, quote unquote, shut down, a former coworker I used to work with at Costco calls me and says, hey, Dan, is this the end of the world? People will start to see things and start to ask us as Christians, hey, is this the end? And I would contend to you, based on what Jesus is laying out in this specific passage, we will see and hear of these things. But to be honest with you, wars and rumors of wars, nations against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, earthquakes, famines, all of these things have been happening already for the last 2,000 years since Jesus made this statement to his disciples. It really has. So what does that ultimately mean? To me, it ultimately means that Jesus' return can happen whenever God says, hey, it's time. But at the same time too, I believe that when Jesus is laying this out, he is talking about an intensity. He's talking about an increase. He's talking about numerous wars and, and ethnic conflicts and earthquakes and famines on a scale that this world has never, ever seen before. I would, I would say, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, I believe these signs in this chapter are talking about the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. 
I don't believe these signs are referring to what we will see before the rapture. I, I believe we may see like, like coincidences. We might say, hey, this, that could be it. That could be it. But based on what the commentators were saying and based on the studies this week, Jesus is talking about before his second coming, not the one where he's here on earth right now, about to go to the cross as he's talking to his disciples. Verse nine, it goes on to say, Take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a, a testimony against them. You know, what's interesting is Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to be delivered, talking to his disciples, talking to the nation of Israel. And I'll say this now, and I'll say it again in a minute. I don't believe this conversation has to do with the church. I believe this has to do with Israel. And John chapter 14 has more to deal with the church and the rapture to come. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be a time where you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to be delivered before government authorities. You're going to be beaten in public places. And if you know the story of the early church, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, after being arrested for preaching in the temple, addressed the Sanhedrin um, with courage and confidence. They were brought before the government authorities and preached the truth. Stephen similarly stood fearlessly before the Jewish council on the very edge of a certain death in Acts chapter 7. And Paul delivered many eloquent defenses and preaching of the gospel as he appeared before kings and governors and rulers. We're in our life group right now. We've been going through the book of Acts and we just got, uh, I believe it's Acts chapter 18 this week where um, Paul gets to Corinth. He's visited all these other cities and one of the weird common themes that we've seen is he's preaching the gospel. He ruffles the feathers of the local government there and basically they run Paul out of town in several places for the fear of his life, for him to be able to continue to preach the gospel. And then we get to chapter 18. Paul has this vision, this dream where God says, hey, guess what? You're going to stay here at Corinth. You're going to be protected and no hurt, and no harm is going to come on you. And Paul spent 18 months there preaching uh, and teaching the gospel before uh, the government really, really got involved and pushed him away. Um, so in a way, what Jesus is saying of these persecutionary signs, that's a word I just made up, um, that these disciples dealing with God and, and Israel are going to see that in an immediate context. But for us today, I want us to look at verse 10. The question is, hey, when's this going to happen? What are those signs going to be? Verse 10, here's the main sign. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. The gospel, the good news of Jesus dying on the cross, which right now hasn't happened chronologically. He's ending, ending up there in the weeks, in the days to come uh, as he's there in Jerusalem. But he says the gospel must first be published. The word published is the exact same word uh, in the Greek that we get the word preached. So the gospel must be preached among all nations. There is no second coming of Christ until this main sign of the gospel being preached to all nations is fulfilled. We could see the signs, we can see the, the beginnings of them to happen, but I would contend that if our end of, like our eschatological end times calendar is, is correct and we believe that the, the church is raptured to heaven before this tribulation, I believe that we will not see these wars and these earthquakes and these things in their uh, intensity and their numbers, but I believe we might see things that kind of could lead to that um, and say, hey, I could see how this or that could connect. So when it comes to this, this um, the preaching the gospel to all nations, 
This ultimately is Jesus saying, number one, you need to know the true Christ because some are going to come and deceive you. But number two, you need to preach the gospel to all nations. And this is a call for us to be obedient. The disciples then, which are about to be the early church, and then us today as Christians, almost 2,000 years later, we go back to the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. The main sign is you're going to see these things, but it's not the end. You're going to see these things. This is the birth pains. This is the beginning of sorrow. But I am not coming back until all the gospel is preached to the entire world. We're 2,000 years removed from this conversation. And I'm sure the disciples were like, hey, is this next week? Is this next month? Is this next decade? Now, we can look today and say, man, look at technology. Look at the ability. We're live streaming right now. We have people, and I don't know if you know this, we have people in Pakistan that watch our live stream and like comment, thank you, bless you. Like, like the impact that the gospel can have around the world is, is amazing. And today we can see how the tools and the technology could propagate the gospel in a way that's never been done before in all of human history. But in verses 11 and 12, not only do we need to know the signs, we need to know the persecution. Verse 11, they shall lead, when, they, when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak. Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given to you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. This almost kind of sounds like backwards to me because just a few verses earlier, he says, you need to take heed, you need to be aware, you need to know the true Christ because there's gonna be false Christs that come. And now in this statement, he says, now when you get delivered before a council or a government in the disciples context, probably very soon, but if we ever have to stand before uh, 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 um, uh, like a government authority for our faith, if, we, if Pastor Aaron and I ever get to a point where society gets to a point where we just preach the truth and society says, nope, you can't do that, you're, you're hating, if they get to the point of us throwing us in jail and we stand before a judge, the, Jesus is telling his disciples there, hey, don't think about what you're gonna say. Lean on the Holy Spirit and allow him to speak through you. It's almost like, hey, prepare and know the true Christ, but if, this, if and when this happens, just lean on the Holy Spirit. You cannot, I cannot lean on the Holy Spirit to speak through me if I first don't know who the true Christ is. So in order for me to do that, I need to have that relationship with Christ first and foremost in salvation. I need to be able to, to sit back and allow him to speak through us. Verse 12, it talks about, now the brother shall betray the brother to death and the father, the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. Families will turn on each other. Fathers against their own children, children against their own parents turning them into this governmental authority that is the quote-unquote truth or the quote-unquote standard. And, 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 and in reality, this is almost like a, a prophecy stating that this is the breakdown of the family. I mentioned earlier, Oasis is a church that's known for family. Our pastor's heartbeat, we hear it every week in staff meetings. You hear it almost every Sunday. Our heart, our goal is to lead others to be passionate followers of Christ, one heart at a time, one family at a time. 
because society today is doing everything they can to destroy the family. And if you don't believe me, look on the websites of some of these organizations. They literally state it. We are for the destruction of the nuclear family. They don't hide it anymore. There's persecution that will come. Families will turn on each other. Children turn on their parents. The breakdown of the family will be another sign that we see. But before we go any further, I do want to address a common confusion, I believe, within the church today. And I say it's a common confusion because I myself um, was in this boat. And I'll just be completely honest with you. I've read multiple commentaries, different preachers, um, and uh, uh, all of them were basically saying the same thing. And, And I feel this way about this passage. There's a common confusion or misconception within the church today that these aforementioned signs are signs that happen before the rapture of the church. These, in fact, are signs in regards to what must happen before Christ's second coming at the end of the tribulation. Uh, And we'll see that next week. Pastor Aaron's going to be hitting on verse 14. And uh, and there's an event prophetically that takes place in verse 14 that all of else of Scripture points to the midpoint of the seven years uh, of the seven year tribulation. My personal viewpoint is that these signs are not happening today in the severity and the increase that Jesus is describing to his disciples until after the church is raptured. Now, do we see connections? of things in the past, and we can kind of connect the dots through Scripture and say, hey, that could be that, or that could be that. Sure. I believe we can start to see those things start to play out. Is it, is it cool to see those connections and possibilities? Sure. But at the end of the day, if the viewpoint that we have that the church is taking up to heaven before this tribulation, if that viewpoint, if that timeline is correct, then we should not see the signs in the severity, in the frequency described by Jesus. I'm not saying we won't see the signs at all, but I'm saying that these signs are going to be in such frequency in a way that the world has never seen it before. I mentioned earlier that the rapture of the church is that between Christ and the church. This, I believe, is talking about Christ, God, and Israel. In this passage, in this these verses, there is no mention of the rapture or a calling away at all. The rapture is signless. It's a surprise. It's a thief in the night. It's the twinkling of an eye. It's the event that takes place where Christ comes back for his bride, the church. This passage and the signs that are are dealing with God and Israel. So I say that to say that why is it important to know the true Christ? Why is it important to know the signs and the persecution? Not only should we know the true Christ, know the signs of his, his return, his second coming, but we must act in obedience to him in order to build people and the kingdom for his ultimate glory. So we're gonna bring it all together right now. Point number three this morning, and then we'll be done. Keep faithful to the mission. Know the true Christ, know the signs, and number three, keep faithful to the mission. Verse 13, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. I asked these questions just a moment ago. Why is it important? Why is it important for me as a Christian to truly know the mind, the character, the heart of Christ? Well, we answered that. We need to know the truth to discern what isn't truth. 
And if we don't study the real thing, we could be carried away with some new wind of doctrine or some new itching ear teaching and take us away from the truth. Why is it important that we know the signs? Even if we as the church aren't technically supposed to be here for that, why would Jesus tell his disciples to truly know him, to know these signs? And as I stated earlier, for them, I believe he was answering the question and they were answering, hey, this building is beautiful, isn't it? He says, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. In the immediate context, Jesus was not staying there at that time to establish his earthly kingdom. In a beautiful temple, they just pointed out, that kingdom, that will come later, the millennial reign after the tribulation. And he has this conversation, he makes this statement. And as I said earlier, maybe the disciples weren't fully grasping the fact that Jesus, in just a few days, is going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. In three days, as promised through prophecy, he is going to rise again. For us, though, why is it important that we truly know him? Why is it important that we know the signs? What's the benefit in studying this prophecy of the signs or the future judgments to come? For us, we are privileged. We're enlightened to the fact that we have all of God's revealed scripture that he intended for us to have. We can read the beginning, the middle, and the end, and we know the outcome. We know who wins in the end. The authority is right here. We have the enlightenment, if you will, the knowledge through knowing Christ, through studying his word, knowing those signs, of, uh, of, uh, those signs and those judgments to come. We're enlightened to the truth of these signs in order for us to accurately preach the gospel message. And the truth is, the gospel message is this. You and I, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's standard, perfect glory. And the Bible tells us that our sin deserves judgment, an eternity separated from God, and a real place called hell. But through the love of God, the obedience of Jesus, we'll see this in the days and weeks to come in this study, Jesus, through his perfect, spotless blood, will die on the cross. And if we accept his free gift of salvation, we are bought the price. We are covered. We are saved. We are a child. We are an heir to the creator of the universe. If we don't accept that gift, we are judged to the consequences of our sin. If we accept that gift, admit to him our imperfection. Simply say, Jesus, I'm sorry for the sins I've committed in the best way I know how, because you're perfect. You died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to be my savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry for what I've done. Because in reality, at the end of the day, only Jesus can pay for that sin. You or I cannot erase a wrong with a right. Keep faithful to the mission. Verse 13 says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. The gospel of Christ is not the most warm and fuzzy message to deliver. It's offensive. What do you mean I'm not perfect? 
What do you mean I am wrong or I'm a sinner or I've sinned in the eyes of God? We shouldn't live in fear to preach the gospel because of the fact that men will hate us. And I say this to our teenagers, I say it all the time. If you're telling, sharing the gospel with someone and they reject you, are they rejecting you or are they rejecting God? They're ultimately rejecting God. We are called to be faithful, mission, uh, faithful uh, missionaries of the gospel message. Being hated for our name's sake. Don't live in fear. And I said this earlier this week, I did a lot more reading than I did typing when it came to this message. Because if I'm completely honest with you, there is a lot of things in end times prophecy that I fully don't 100% understand. <gasps> the pastor doesn't fully know. I'm being humble and honest. Usually, I, hopefully, I'm always humble and honest. But um, because there's so much to pull in from multiple books of the Bible and there's so much cultural implications of what these phrases mean and they don't mean. Why is it important to know the true Christ? Why is it important that we know these signs and persecutions? To be honest, we all have a tendency to overanalyze things that we don't fully understand. So let's not get caught up with trying to add dates or timelines or things to these signs or connecting too many dots when Jesus has placed a sign right in front of us of, hey, you want to know when? You want to know the signs? Here's the sign your neighbor needs Jesus. Here's the sign. In order for you to teach him Jesus, you need to know Jesus. You need to take it to your coworker, take it to your friend. Is it cool? Is it okay to, to look at those things? Absolutely. But going back to that first point, this should be the only source right here. We have to be careful because as he said, many will come in his name and deceive many. But there's the sign right in front of us. And that's what I love about verse 10. If, if you really want the kingdom of God to come, I was thinking, I was like, and just even thinking about this as reading over the notes last night, um, the disciples were talking about how beautiful this building was because they probably want Christ's earthly kingdom right there. But if we as Christians, and I'm not going to lie, looking ahead to the kingdom, looking ahead to heaven, it's pretty awesome just getting caught in imagination and thought sometimes. But if we want that to come, if we're looking, hey, I'm just a pilgrim passing through and, and uh, that's my eternal home. We want the, that to happen. We have a charge in verse 10 to, fill, to do, to preach the gospel to all nations. And if we truly are going to preach it, the verse 13 will be hated for my, Jesus says, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure until the end, endure. Also, remain faithful. We won't endure, we won't remain faithful if we are not spiritually prepared by truly knowing Christ, truly knowing the signs. Because I don't know about you, you cannot adequately teach the gospel message of our mistakes and the consequences and then the coming judgment if someone were to reject that free gift of salvation. You're not really telling the whole picture if you leave out the judgment part at the end. So at the end of the day, do you want your neighbor? Do you want your coworker? Do you want your family member to reject Christ? Yes, there's going to be rejection. Yes, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. But we are called to go and to teach and to baptize. We are called to endure, to remain faithful until the end. We are ultimately called, Christian, to be obedient. 
verse, end of verse 13, the same shall be saved. Can I tell you, this is not talking about a works-based salvation because it's referring to those and those followers, those disciples, those believers, us today who are saved, who were already saved and striving to remain faithful. I ask the question, what are you building? In the American society today, it's who has the biggest car, who has the biggest house, who's got the most toys, who's got the most zeros in their bank account. That's the driving, motivating factor. What are you building? My wife and I, from time to time, I'll say, hey, Rach, I want to get this. And what do you think about that? And she kind of like switches places with me and becomes the preacher in our home and says, hey, that's going to burn someday. It's not going to last for eternity. And I'm just like, will you stop preaching at me, please? I just asked if I wanted this or that. But at the end of the day, we as Christians are called to build people with the gospel because sin broke that bond between us and Christ. And it's only the blood of Jesus that if we focus and tell others about it, where we can build people back to where God intended people to be at creation before sin, before the fall of man. If you build people, you then in turn build the family. And if you build the family, you then in turn build the church. And then you build the community. You build the kingdom of God. I love this passage in Philemon 1.6. As Paul's talking to Philemon in the introductory and says, hey man, I love what your faith is. I love your story. I love your testimony. In verse six, he says that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. That the communication, your story, what Jesus did in your heart, that that would just be effectual to the ministry, to the world, to the people you live in context with. What are we building? Are we focused on building the kingdom? Because Jesus' direct answer uh, to, hey, when's this going to happen? What are those signs going to be? Because number one, you need to know the true Christ. Number two, you need to know and be aware of the signs and the persecutions to come. But you need to know those things in order to firmly and correctly and accurately teach the gospel. If we really believe all these things that Jesus laid out will indeed come to pass, Yesterday in that teen Bible study, as we looked at the doctrine of the Bible and we looked at the different precepts and principles, I forget which passage it was off the top of my head, but it says the word of God will remain pure and will come to, it will come to pass, it will come to fruition. If we believe that everything Jesus just laid out will happen, will come to pass, then Christian, you and I, we ought to be urgent. We ought to be on fire. We ought to be so motivated to invite our friends to church. Why is inviting a friend to church such a big deal? Because I can't speak for every church, but I know here at Oasis, number one, there's that family atmosphere. But number two, family sometimes tells you, hey, we love you and um, this isn't right. And number one is you're gonna hear the gospel message here at Oasis. Next week is friend day. I'm gonna let you in on a little ground floor behind the scenes secret. Friend day is a gimmick. It really is. I'll hear about this in staff meeting. It really is. Because what did pastors say last week? Every Sunday should be what? Easter Sunday, right? Or a friend day. Every Sunday, if we truly believe in these signs and in and those persecutions, and we can get into the debate of, is it happened here, here, and here? But to me, that's not the issue of what Jesus is laying out. 
I think what Jesus is laying out is, hey, you need to know who the true Christ is because there's gonna be deception. But you also need to know what those signs are because you need to teach not just the death, burial, and resurrection and salvation, but you need to teach the consequences of rejecting that if people reject that. What are you building? Are you urgent about sharing the gospel to those you know and love that you know need it? Who is that one person in your mind? If I were to ask you right now, who's one person that you know at work or in the neighborhood or in your family that needs to know Christ? I, I, in life groups this week, I shared a, a member of my family that I just started a conversation with. And, and, and I literally said, hey, I don't know where this is going to go, um, but just pray if the Lord opens an opportunity to have a gospel conversation that I'm there and I'm ready to share the truth. This is a conversation. This is a family member I haven't spoken to in a couple years. Who's that one person that you have, that friend? Not to just invite to church next Sunday on Friend Day, but each and every Sunday. What are you building? In closing, today, do you need to know Christ in salvation? Do you need to have a relationship with him first and foremost? If you have that relationship and you're a Christian this morning, do you need to know Christ in his word, his character, the truth about him, uh, his teachings more in depth to reach a world that desperately needs him? I told the teenagers yesterday morning, why is it important that we study the Bible? Why is it important that we know these teachings and know these doctrines and know the, the minutia of this viewpoint or that viewpoint? Why is that important? Because people will ask, hey, Dan, is this the end of the world? People will ask, hey, why does the Bible have so many translations? What's, what, what's the deal with that? People will ask us questions that if we don't know the word, we won't be prepared to answer. And this is a call this morning to prepare spiritually, but not only prepare spiritually for ourselves, but to be building others. Do you need to keep faithful to the mission of building people, building the family, building the church, in building the kingdom. The title this morning was that question, what are you building? The main idea was this statement that we as Christians must strive to truly know Christ more in order to be faithful in building people for the kingdom. I've never done this before, but in closing, and the praise team, if you'd like, can come on up at this time. What are you building? Is it that big, beautiful temple? that on the outside looks gorgeous, looks ornate, just, just shines in the, in the sunset? Or are you building your neighbor? Are you reaching out to that loved one, that friend that needs to know the gospel of Christ? Because at the end of the day, God could bless us, and I'm not saying, I'm not against this, but God could bless us with a massive church building that's even more beautiful than this but the building's not the church. We are. And if we are not about building people, a beautiful, brand new Oasis Baptist Church campus is no different than a corrupt temple almost 2,000 years ago that looks great, looks beautiful, looks like it's shining. I don't know if we'll do gold siding or anything like that, but uh, that'd be weird. But on the inside, it's just as corrupt. What are you building? So I'm going to change the title of the message with this last question. Instead of what are you building, who are you building? Who is that friend next week? Who is that one? Who is the one? And if you don't have one, let me challenge you with this. Pray and ask God, God, can you reveal someone to me? 
or open up a gospel conversation. Pastor Aaron shared earlier a conversation he had with a teacher. Um, I ended up having a conversation with a set of parents at the football game, and I actually knew their son, and, and they're, they were, they're a Christian family, and it was just great to encourage. And I even said, hey, if you're in town next week, come to, come to Oasis, check us out. Who are you building? God, I thank you just for this message, this challenge. I thank you just for your heart and just teaching the truth to your disciples. And I thank you for the ability that we today get to look back in your word and, and dissect and look at the importance of knowing you, the importance of knowing what's to come. But most importantly, Lord, being faithful, keeping the mission that you've laid in front of us, God. God, help us to be urgent. Help us to be aware. Help us to be on fire, not just for a friend day or an Easter Sunday, but every day, every Sunday, God. Let's be part of that 80% that invites their friend to church. God, today we need to focus on building people. Not, not all these other things, but building people. And in time, as we build people, we build the family, we build the church, we build the kingdom, things will come. God, help us never to lose sight of doing just that. We ask this in your holy and most precious name. Amen. If you stand to your feet this morning, if God's working in your heart in any way, can I challenge you? If it's in the area of salvation, don't leave this building without first knowing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If it's in the area of knowing Christ more and committing to a more regular Bible study or a more regular prayer time or more faithful in giving or more faithful in fellowship and building each other up, if that's your prayer, would you? ask God to help you with that this morning? Or is it in the area of remaining faithful to the mission? Maybe it's that area of outreach. We have an opportunity this upcoming Thursday to serve food to teachers in our community. And when they ask questions of why you're here, we're here because we want to show you the love of Jesus. As the praise team sings this morning.